Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And, uh, well, this is how the podcast starts. Um, I get the guest to introduce themselves, I guess is really what I do. I outsource the introduction of the guest to the guest by asking them, who are you? Oh, right. Oh, okay. Well, no, I come in now and I say my name. Yeah. Well, you can say whatever you want to that, to be honest. There is no particular rules or regulations to what you say, but I ask you who you are. Wow. You've, uh, you've moved the paradigm uh, off the cliff. Um, I'm, I, am, I am not the role in my life. I'm not a, I'm not a comedian. I am Sean McAuliffe. So what do you consider yourself to be when somebody asks you what your job is? If you have to fill in a form or something, what do you say your job is? Well, for years, uh, yeah, the tax form was always the the one where I felt the need to be the most honest for some reason. (laughs) But I would never never put comedian down um, because it felt – in fact, I never used to – I never liked being introduced – as a comedian, I, the worst introduction I f- felt that I could have would be, here's a very funny fellow who's going to really make you laugh. Here he is, because that just puts too much pressure on me. So the tax form was a bit like that. So I would put writer. I was, a, I was happy to admit I was a writer, which is, was true, uh, but not, I didn't sort of allude at all to the performative aspect of my work. You were like, well, this is, this is definitely writing. You can't, these are words on a page in an order. Yes. You cannot deny this is writing. That's right. It, it was proof of itself. Yeah. You can, can deny it's comedy, but you can't <laughs> deny that it's writing. That's right. So the circle was squared with an answer and I felt, well, they're not going to ask me any, any more embarrassing questions about who I am. Uh, the idea of raising people's expectations as a comedian is an interesting one to me. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my favorite intro that I think summed up uh, the difference between Australian comedians and American comedians, because when you work in America they will introduce you with a list of your credits. You know, this guy, you know, has appeared on Comedy Central and he was on The Tonight Show the other night and they'll list off like five or six things to tell the audience how impressive the person that they're about to see is. Yes. And yet Peter Hallier used to introduce himself from backstage and it said, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, turn off your mobile phones and lower your expectations. It's Peter Hallier. <laughs> well, and that, to me, that, that that was more natural. Yeah, well, and I think there, there are some American uh, comedians who prefer that because indeed if you think of Larry David's show Curb Your Enthusiasm I think that was a, an equivalent uh, gesture on his part to say don't expect too much and and for, and really that works well that I think that works better for me anyway I don't know about you whether you like the the build up I, I'm always there for the laughs rather than the applause if that makes sense I don't necessarily uh, want them to think in fact in the early days when they didn't know they didn't recognize me I hadn't been on television it was a lot easier to get laughs in a funny sort of way, uh, honest laughs. You know what I mean? Because there's a sort of a, there's a sort of a uh, if you're lucky enough to be recognised, and if you're lucky enough to have a bunch of people in front of you who are there because of your previous work, uh, that'll buy you about five minutes, I think, no matter how terrible you are, and then. I reckon five, ten minutes, then you've got to start earning your way. I mean, I, I think you're being generous with five. I reckon it gets you three and a half, but <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I've seen plenty of people who, who have big wheels come out on stage and not do that well. And it, and it is harder for them in some strange way. And, of course, they get, they've got no place to, uh, to practice or to try out material because everything's regarded as being an event. Uh, not, that I, not that I'm at that level, but you know, there are, I imagine you've seen comedians, big-name comedians, come out and... And, uh, and have to struggle a little bit. Well, I will say that there is something to be said about the expectation gap. Mm. You know, so when somebody comes along to see 
uh, Chris Rock do a show, right? Chris Rock's touring Australia, and you've paid $130 for the ticket, and you've seen Chris Rock's specials on the TV. You go along, I expect, thinking it's going to be a minimum 8 out, eight out of 10 performance. Sure, you, you, can't, you can't not enjoy it. Right, but the other thing is, it kind of has to be that to satisfy your expectations. Yeah. If it ends up being a 6 or 7 out of 10, you haven't really been satisfied. Whereas if you go to a comedy night and you see somebody you've never seen before, but they are very, very funny, you're laughing in a way that you, because your expectations had not been raised. Yes, you are genuinely going to be surprised and delighted by that person you don't know amusing you. And uh, the other thing is, is that sometimes... I always get the feeling, you know, those big arena shows that some very big name comedians will do. There's, a, there's almost, it's almost like you're playing a role uh, as an audience member to go along there and celebrate and be a part of what is expected of an audience. You, in a way, you're kind of acting right. the role. You're, you're, Barry Humphreys talks about this. He talked, to, he talked about going to see a comedian when he was very young with his parents. And the comedian was from England, playing at the Tivoli, one of the Tivoli uh, theatres, was past his prime. And he fed off the energy of the audience, this comedian. It's almost as if the audience was really there for him rather than the other way around. And Humphrey said, I never want to get to that stage. You know, if that stage ever arrives, then I'm done. And I think, I think there's a stage of... This is, this is probably me guarding against the idea that I would ever be this successful. Which, oh, yeah, I don't really want it. But, but the idea of the audience kind of pl- playing a role... Uh, Steve Martin talks about this in his excellent uh, book of uh, memoirs uh, called, I think it's called Born Standing Up. It is. Where he talks about not being able to develop any more material, not being able to progress his work at all because he's kind of stuck in this role. The audience is treating him like like it is a rock concert uh, and no one moves. Everyone's just enacting this expectation of them. Uh, And once that happens, I guess you're dead a bit, aren't you? So I'm interested in that, like your relationship with, you know, work and, you know, fame. That's what we just mentioned, you know, that idea of being that super successful. Because to people listening to this, you know, any person who's listening to this imagines you as being super successful. So when you say super successful, what, what do you mean by that that differentiates it from what you do? Uh, I guess, uh, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of people who are playing to... You, uh, look, I'm assuming that the mo- there is a motivation to bring whatever you do to an audience. And it's a, it feels a natural progression that our audience gets a little larger each time. Now, you can, you can play to an abstract audience when you're on television, when you're playing to a, a dead camera. You've kind of got a studio audience there, but that, they're not really an audience. They're kind of there to help you a little bit. And, and so the laughter doesn't feel quite as honest as it does when you're on stage. And because I'm not a stand-up, I have a different relationship with an audience when I perform on stage. I'm kind of observed because I'm, I have a more actorly approach. I, I'm, I feel like I'm more observed pretending that I'm talking to somebody else rather than talking directly to the audience. So it's not quite as direct or warm. Uh, now, what was your original question? I've completely strayed from the original brief. It was about, oh, about success. Uh, so I figure that the natural idea of a career in comedy would be to try and bring whatever you do to a larger group of people and a newer group of people and a, the fun of it for me is mustering that audience of disparate souls uh, so that they all laugh at the same thing at more or less the same time so you get that nice kick of a big laugh and it kind of rolls up the back of the theater and then comes 
back towards you again and they're kind of giving you informing you what your timing is and uh the more you can do that and surprise an audience the the more point there is to the career that you've chosen i think so you can do that two ways you can either keep playing doing the same thing to bigger and bigger and bigger audiences uh or you can do lots of different things for the same audience and i've tended to do that more than the other i think i've i feel more comfortable doing that to try and fold uh my origami style to fold the, the whatever i can do uh, a few different ways uh so that it's it looks like it's evolving it's probably it's probably not being added to it anyway but it's it has different shapes well I, it's one of the great things i admire about, about your work and i i actually often think about it in my own life when i'm choosing to do something that might not necessarily fit in exactly with what you imagine that i would do you know, so if so, I'm so hang on, you're putting yourself in the head of the audience, thinking, "Is this what they expect me to do?" Well, no, more in that idea of like, if sometimes I go, "Oh, well, what, why would I want to do that? That doesn't really fit in logically with okay. all the other things that I'm doing in my world." But I want to do it. I often think of you know you and how you, well, the the wide variety of you know projects that you have worked on and and what you do. So how do you decide? you know, what you're going to do and why you're going to do it? Um, it's more of, a, of an emotional choice rather than a logical one. I mean, there are some logical considerations you you make in order to put that choice in, and execute it. Um, but uh, usually if it's... If somebody suggests something to me that I have never done before, that's instantly interesting. And I might not be... I might not regard myself as being at all qualified to uh, deal with it or do it. Um and it might fail, but that's kind of exciting. I kind of like that. I, 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 I've got to the stage now where I've been around long enough to be now going back and doing things that I failed at originally, like <laughs> like sitcoms or, or indeed uh, talking about your generations, kind of a version of a variety show that actually did does work, whereas my first attempt at it didn't really work at all. So, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the initial interest is sparked by the inherent challenge in what is being proposed. Uh, and it's usually an opportunity that then makes me think, well, how can, what can I do to, to take advantage of that opportunity? Um, there are a few pet projects that I'll come up with in, in my room that I then take to people and say, what do you think about this? The books that I, that I write are often like that. I write them first and then take them to a publisher and say, is this anything? It's kind of what we always do, isn't it? He was holding up. <laughs> is this shit, or is it okay? Uh, so you do. You need, and and usually, if someone's prepared to pay for it, then that's probably a reasonably good indication that someone has some faith in it. <laughs> I mean, is this a, is is this anything? Like, if you come and see me on the first night of the comedy festival run, the entire show is just me going. Is this something? Is this something? Well, what about all, this? Is that, this something? I tell you what, most of the posters for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival are of I reckon comedians who haven't written their act who are simply adopting that attitude. I don't know, I don't what, know. What, what is what's what am I doing? I'm kind of shrugging and what? <laughs> um, yes, it would be interesting if we took our photos for our posters at the end of the festival rather than before yes. the show has been written. Yes. To see if there was a different mood that infused through them. Um, well, the successful ones would have very smug posters. Yep. And the, the other ones would be a little more honest, maybe. Regretful. Yeah, head in hands. Why did I do this? Jazz musician type <laughs> shots. Uh, well, I, you, your, yours, yours often look like you're a bit surprised. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, which, another one. Oh, <laughs> which, to be honest with you, Sean, probably sums up the state of my my external observation of my career could be best described by a constant state of surprise. Well, I think that's a good place to be. I think I think that uh, we talked about surprising the audience. Well, you know, that's an important part. I think of 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 any you know comedy comedy act i suppose is constantly trying to surprise them but i think the response of that audience uh delighting you and surprising you that's a that's a it's a two-way street isn't it yes so uh okay well I, I, this this podcast we ask people we ask people i ask people the royal we um i ask people if they have a philosophy of any kind and and then we have a chat so i'm going to ask that up the top before we just ramble on about everything sure and then we can just let it infuse the conversation if if it does, and it, it does not need to, but do you have one? Is there some sort of you know philosophy that you have towards your life, or towards your work, or towards something that you would like to share? I, there's nothing that I've sat down and fashioned as being. I've never felt the need to actually uh, put it down in writing or even get it straight in my head. Um, but having said that, uh, I would be a, a sad soul indeed at the age of 56 to have not kind of worked out some things that I think are good ideas and other things that aren't good ideas. And, and uh, yeah, so I suppose if I was to sit down and say, well, I've kind of answered that question, so I'll put that over here on this side. haven't answered that one, so I'll just put that over there. There'd be a pile that would probably be slightly taller than the other. I'm not sure which would be which, but I have, I think, worked some things out. Um, and then later on in life, I might kind of revisit it and, and give it more nuance. Uh, but, uh, I certainly am, I'm certainly, I think I understand things a little better than I did when I was, you know, eight years old, which is an advance. Well, that's not a bad, <laughs> that's, there's not too many people who can claim that, <laughs> but a life unexamined, what's it, is it Plato says it, the life, uh, a life unexamined is a life unlived. Uh, yes. Um, so, you know, if we have the luxury in our lives, uh, where we're, we're not busy trying to survive, if we have some opportunity and leisure to sit back and just uh, uh, reflect on some, even if it's a regret that comes out of it, if you, if you kind of just analyse it a little bit, you're a better person for it, I think. Do you think that, I mean, obviously the line of work you've chosen, like inbuilt into our work is the opportunity to reflect on not only who we are as human beings, but who human beings are as well. You know, it's, it's intrinsic to what we do as a job in some ways, whereas yeah, there are plenty of other jobs where that's not the case. You know, you go to your job, you work your job, and then perhaps maybe occasionally in your free time, you might have a chance to examine your own life or examine humanity as a whole. Do you do you find that a blessing that you've chosen a career where you have the opportunity to constantly be examining that, or is that sometimes a burden? Uh, well, un- I mean, we talked about the, d- the difference between a stand-up comic and maybe what I do, and, and so I don't tend to uh, process stuff in my life uh, and turn it into material I can do in front of an audience. So I don't do it directly like that. But yes, there is there are opportunities that come up every now and again, which give me a chance to, um, for example, on SBS, there was a, a, a series of programs about faith, not so much about religion, but about faith that I did, which gave me an opportunity to actually try and answer a genuine question I had about whether um, whether it was a how you get to the point where you believe in God, because I I hadn't quite had that epiphany and uh, I was kind of um, a little envious of those who'd had it. So uh, 
why not make a TV show about it? I get to travel, uh, it's all paid for, uh, and I get to speak to some people who, uh, who are quite interesting. So, yeah, the, uh, yes, I think there are a lot of jobs in the world that um, deny you the opportunity. In fact, they would uh, discourage you from, uh, from uh, presenting anything of yourself in it. Um, so, yeah, we are lucky, I guess, that we get uh, some opportunity to give personal expression to things that we're thinking. I did love that show, and I did. Uh, it did occur to me at the time, I was like, gee, Sean's done a much more impressive version of this podcast. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, this is why I started it, was so I could have conversations with people about, you know, what they believe in life and what they believe life is about. And then I, I saw you do this, and I, I wondered where the inspiration for that had come from. So did you have a genuine yearning was there an unanswered question in your mind did you have an admiration for those who believe in something more strenuously i had a i had an admiration i had an envy it was envy really mm. I, I i wouldn't say it was necessarily admiring but i certainly wished that i was uh that i didn't have that uh that it was an unanswered question, I suppose, and I need. I thought, wouldn't it be great not to have have that as an unanswered question? Wouldn't it be great to just know that there was, with absolute certainty, to know that there was going to be an afterlife, that there was a God, uh, that there was some sort of purpose and meaning that was already there for your life, and what you had to do was simply the easy job of finding out what that was, and that was probably what your job was. Uh, but I, there were too many. It seemed so unlikely to me that that was the case. There was there was enough evidence around for me to look at and go, yeah, you know what? It doesn't really seem like anybody is controlling this. This seems to me like you kind of have to find, make, impose your own meaning on things. I'm not the first person to to suspect that might be the case, but I I um, there equally are a number of um, you know voices uh, around that uh, suggest otherwise. So I, I kind of wanted to go on their turf into their world and uh, and ask them how they got to the point that they arrived at where they were so certain. And a lot of people, um, a lot of, it, it occurred to me only afterwards that it was a very simple answer and that people um, kind of at their parents' knee will imbibe a story about their origin, uh, about themselves individually and also about, you know, how humans came to be and why we're like we are and then that story sticks with you until you get to a certain age and then you start most people would go well I'm going to analyze that a bit more closely than I did when I was eight years old now that I'm 23 uh, uh, and I realize now that of course adults make a choice to believe and those who choose not to make a choice don't so it's not really a, about an epiphany it's a, it's about going, well, you know what, there's a couple of gaps here that don't quite make sense, but I'm going to suspend that because I think the, uh, for whatever reason, there's lots of reasons why my people would uh, accept uh, that there's a God in this world and, and uh, I would never discourage anybody at all or, or be judgmental about anybody who thought that way because I think it can be great comfort and meaning to people's lives. And no matter how you get there, that's that's good. If you've got comfort in your life uh, when someone passes, or you uh, you need um, you need the the sort of safety of thinking that uh, somebody's looking after you, you know, from above, uh, and you, you're happier for it, then great, fantastic. Wouldn't that be great? I would love that. Were you always of that opinion? Because that's certainly a place I found myself 
in now is a place where, you know, it, like as long as your beliefs don't hurt anybody else, you know, they're not being used to, you know, to restrict somebody else's life. Sure. You know, some of the things that come with organized religion can be, you know, disenfranchising to certain people in society. But if your belief is for you and it gives you comfort and the, I've come to that level of acceptance of that, but I went through that period that I think a lot of people go through when they, you know, reject some of the, you know, they, they read the Bible for the first time and go, hang on, a lot of this doesn't make sense if you take it all literally, you yeah. know, and you get a bit angry and you think people who believe it are stupid and all those sort of things. Did you ever go through one of those periods or did you always have a sense of, you know, a, a broader sense of comfort with, you know, the role that religion played in people's lives? I think I think that was a, yeah, that would have been the through line for the whole thing. And, I, and to be honest with you, I just assumed I was wrong. Mm. And that I and obviously I'm not alone in thinking that, that, that well actually I didn't really think about it. it was more feeling a feeling that uh, you're kind of by yourself and really you had to go and make your own uh, way in the world and perhaps we'd uh, we'd made God in our own image rather than the other way around uh, and it kind of it, to me that kind of makes sense now but I'm I'm not despairing because I don't uh, necessarily have the type of faith that other people have but I don't think the world's amazing enough without necessarily having to necessarily having to have a man in the sky um, I'm, I'm quite impressed at the way a tree grows and I'm, I, I, there's a lot of beauty around and I can, that's actually more impressive than you know the natural order of things is, is actually a little more impressive to me uh, than somebody suspending the natural order of things in order to make something to create something or to have a miraculous uh, appearance of something that feels like a that feels like a like a kind of a magic trick whereas uh, Things are a lot more complicated and and more awesome as a result of seeing things for what they are. And we can't kind of make a tree yet, and I think that's pretty impressive. Was there uh, anything when you were making the show in particular where you started to be convinced of anything more than that? Was your position consistent right through making the program or were there times when you were talking to people or hearing their stories or hearing about the passion of their beliefs that you felt like you were closer to a genuine understanding of you know what they believed and having some of it yourself or did you consistently throughout it sort of have the same belief yourself and were just being a tourist in their world uh i kind of i kind of i don't think i got any closer in terms of uh having a a, a moment of uh of blinding light or anything like that but i was i did admire a lot of there were a lot of really lovely families and there were a lot of very happy people and there were a lot of people i went to a place in in brazil uh where um there was a a healer a faith healer and a lot of people had um turned up and a lot of them had children who were very sick and i kept thinking oh i hope this guy's at the very least sincere because this would be such an awful thing to do if you you're being cynical about it and these people are putting their their confidence and they you know this and i can perfectly understand why they were looking forward to the next life because a lot of for a lot of them their life was so miserable now and uh um having speaking to those people and seeing the comfort that it gave them uh made me realize absolute with absolute certainty that yes it's enough it's enough for this for this person uh to get that sort of comfort to to believe in and i almost didn't want to ask questions because i I felt that my questions in in and of themselves were were kind of casting doubt and i didn't want to spoil that for them um but there was there were a, a couple of moments when you look at things up close particularly more religion than faith i think where religion for me uh it felt more oppressive and more about um 
organising people than it did. Anybody who suggests, I think anybody who suggests they have the inside running on the kingdom of heaven is probably not being entirely truthful to you. So I, I, I had a I had a reinstatement of my natural, um, uh, I wouldn't say cynicism, but scepticism, I suppose, about uh, about those who claim to know a little bit more about how things work. Um, Anyone who tells you something different is trying to sell you something, as, well, they, as yeah, they say. There's a there's a there's a couple of things. I'm sure a lot of people are very sincere about it, and and you know that's fine for them. But I I wouldn't uh, if somebody comes out of a cave and tells me they spoke to God, then I'm probably going to go. Well, that's that's great, but that's I'll, I'm not going to take your word for Firstly, it. Firstly, what do you say? I'd like to know what he said. Though. Like, <laughs> what sort of voice did he yeah. have? Uh, you know, where was he, and mm. uh, why was that bush? Was the bush on fire? Was the bush actually burning when it was speaking uh, to you? I, I, how did that work? Like, like, how loud was he speaking? Like, <laughs> did you have to get close to the burning bush to hear it, or were you able to sit back at a comfortable distance yes, from the it, bush? Was it a polyphonic sort of voice, yeah. or did it actually feel like it was sourced? Was it diegetic, or was it non-diegetic? Let me ask you this. If a bush started speaking to you, mm. you're out in the middle of the desert, you know, you're on a bushwalk. Sure. Are you the sort of person who would ever go on a bushwalk? Uh, well, I have been on. I often I would go by myself. It'd be too frightening. But, okay, uh, but you're with some other people. You're sure. bushwalking, but you've gone off to go to the bathroom or okay. something, right? I'm by myself. You're okay, by yourself, sure. and suddenly a bush in front of you spontaneously bursts into flames and starts talking to you. What's your immediate reaction to that? Well, my, uh, that would simply underline the fact that the, the the thought that I've always had is that our perceptions are fallible, and there's something wrong with me at that point. <laughs> There's no way that I, there's no way that I would. That you I wouldn't would tr- immediately jump to it's being. This is God. This no. is definitely God. No, I think there's a problem. I, yeah. I need to see somebody. Yeah. Clearly, <laughs> I don't trust myself, and maybe that's a maybe that that's across the board. You know, really, I don't I don't have enormous confidence in myself. So uh, that would just be an, another indication that uh, I'm I'm absolutely you know right in not having that much confidence in myself. When you say you don't have enormous confidence in yourself, what does that actually mean? Is that a throwaway line or is that a, a real insight into you? Uh, no, look, I've got a theory that I've got a theory in it, it. I wouldn't dare apply it to you, Will, but um, uh, that uh, people take to the stage uh, to perform uh, because they kind of need some validation. They need some approval in the form of either the, the warming effect of laughter or the, uh, the more obvious applause that, that people get. So, um, so to a certain extent, you know, I'm a kind of needy sort of person, and I, and I love going onto the stage, and I love I love that process, the back and forth process between an audience and and a performer. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think without that, I'd be um, I'd be I'd never know whether uh, whether the jokes were any good. You know, if I was just in a room writing something or thinking up something amusing, uh, I. I think that'd be a very sad old life. It's got to be. It's got to be received and approved of in the form of a laugh. And that's a good thing about a laugh is that it's more often than not it's quite an honest reaction, and you don't get too. You know, you could kind of fake it a bit with drama. You know, you can kind of go, "Oh, they're nice and quiet. They're really listening." Mm. And uh, you, I think, I think you're capable of deluding yourself that you're a good actor more than a good comedian. Because if you go out there and you don't get any laughs, then it hasn't worked, and you're not any good, and you don't exist. It's you know? it's an interesting relationship, the relationship between comedic performer and the audience, because it is one of those rare areas where, I mean, how long have you been doing comedy for now? 
Uh, well, professionally since uh, about 1994. Okay, so like 30 years, basically, sure. right? Like, And if a doctor had been being a doctor for 30 years and came out and went, well, this is probably the right thing to do, most people go, okay, well, that's sure. we trust this doctor. Sure. But in comedy, it's that one job where you go, well, I think this is comedy, and a whole room full of people go, no, nah, not comedy. Yeah. And they're right. <laughs> they're absolutely right. They're abs- and there could be a lot of reasons why it's not comedy. Yes. Because uh, sometimes it, with exactly the same material, and as far as you're concerned, exactly the same performance. It's comedy one night, but not the next. Mm. And that's the uh, that's the uh, that's the absolute that's the attractive puzzle of the whole thing. I love the fact that it's never necessarily the same thing, and I like I like the number of moving parts with comedy performance. So you do like that? That's oh, something. I, lo- I yes. love that. I find that very. I, in fact, I don't think I would be doing it if I didn't enjoy. That seems to me the, the the fun of it. That's I, the fun of it, and then there's kind of an emotional thing that goes on when you perform. Um, but you've still got to do all the hard work, and you've got. Uh, again, getting back to Steve Martin's uh, excellent book, he t- he says, uh, for him, if he was certain a joke would work, he probably wouldn't even bother performing it. What, and why would you? What the reason you do it is because you want to see if it's funny. I I do think that you know there is a point in a comedian's life where and not everybody probably a not everybody has the same approach to comedy and not everybody does it for the same reasons but I do think there is something that we often don't admit to ourselves which is that we get a thrill of some kind even if it's not acknowledged out of attempting to master something that is unmasterable you know in that like it is actually the fact that that a joke can be perfect one night and you can do it exactly the same the next night in exactly the same way and it's not perfect anymore. There is something about that that we have signed up to that we, uh-huh. even if we won't admit it to ourselves. So the, the actual the danger of it. Yes. Yes, yes. Because there's nothing worse than, uh, than doing a joke. Mind you, you can kind of work, you can kind of, if you can then extract a laugh out of the fact that a joke hasn't worked, that's doubly satisfying. I, enjoy, I do enjoy that. And there are there are some comics out there who kind of have a kamikaze. Well, they have, they self sabotage a little bit. They'll go in and be. And I used to do this when I started out. I don't tend to do it these days. Uh, but at university, when I was doing um, you know sort of amateur stuff and and reviews and things, it's almost like I would deliberately pick a subject that was so obscure that I was just amusing myself and it was kind of an excuse it was kind of, I know this is not I know this not won't work and I intended it not to work so that when the joke didn't work it was part of my plan and then I think is a lot of comedians might do that and then as they get a bit older they see that it's just a pointless exercise why <laughs> Why on earth would you be doing that? Well, as, as I always say to people, I say, why would I make a joke not work on purpose when plenty of the jokes that I thought were good don't work anyway? Yes, yes it's, going to, it's going to happen. But I guess, I guess it's about ownership of that failure. And you go, oh, no, I intended to. I intended it to be uh, above the heads of everybody when in fact, you're just being a knob. How are you with uh, failure? Are you a person who uh, you know sits easily I'm, with failure being part it. of it? I'm used to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I oh, know it's uh, look at it, it it you take a body blow I think if it uh if if you haven't given an audience a good time I mean I I can honestly say this and this might be my arrogance creeping through that I don't think I've had I don't think I've had anything where it hasn't worked it there's all, it's it's a question of degree um even the shows that I've had on television that have been uh, less than successful in terms of 
audience numbers and I can look back on them and go, no, that was fine. That was good. I'd enjoy that. That's, that was constructed properly. That was performed well. I enjoyed working this. There's enough good things that come out of it. And that's the truth of it. collaboration for me is that I actually far more enjoy, even if the show doesn't work, it was still a worthwhile experience because I got to work with a whole bunch of people who are really good. Well, you've almost answered the question I was going to ask anyway, but was how you judge you know, whether something is successful or not. And I guess you've half, or at least maybe wholly answered that then. But do you have a sense of, you know, when you go, okay, well, I'm satisfied with this because we've achieved this at the very least. Yeah, yeah. If there's a lesson learned, then, you know, at the very least, if there's a lesson learned, that's something. But uh, uh, I'll still feel pretty upset if a a joke that... uh, Especially if I muck it up. If it's a good joke and I'm the one responsible, I will go back and analyse, as I'm sure every comedian does, why something didn't work. I remember doing a, st- I remember doing a play once and uh, uh, the performer who was w- working opposite, the actor opposite, opposite me said, I've lost a laugh. He came off an interval and said, I've lost a laugh. Would you mind next performance just standing in the wings and just seeing whether I'm doing anything differently? So I did. I watched it was differently, and and he was getting this great laugh every night, and then it kind of disappeared for two performances. And uh, I watched him do it, and he didn't get the laugh again. He gets gets some laugh, but not the big laugh that he wanted. And it occurred to me when he was doing it that he was angling his body slightly towards the audience as he said the line. And there was a. I, I wondered, and we discussed this after. I said, I wonder if the audience can sense that you are turning to them to and you're expecting the laugh and it's I think, a sign it's a non-verbal communication to the audience that you here we go i'm about to even they might not be in their heads processing that but we malcolm gladwell's book blink talks about the idea of how many of our assessments we make instinctively through evolution that when you first meet somebody that often your instincts in that first meeting are much better than your idea of what that person is after you have more information because sometimes more information actually confuses it. And if you just trust, and I do, I absolutely believe that audiences can instinctively, you know, understand those moments. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense that they can. And I think that there's a game without even thinking about it. And subconsciously, not only can they pick up that signal, but they also subconsciously resent the fact that you're expecting to get a laugh. Yes. And they lean back at that moment and they lean out yeah, of the laugh they go, and they won't you. give it to you. <laughs> Fuck you, guy, who thought he was going to get a laugh. Yeah, which is a really interesting. Reveals... And weirdly, we wanted a laugh, but now because you knew you were going to get a laugh. Yeah, who do you think? Yeah, we're yeah, in charge. Yeah. I think it's a constant. In a way, it's a lovely... It's a lovely dance between the audience <laughs> yeah. and the performer about about who is. And I remember reading this one. They're saying, "Well, no, no, you're not making the audience laugh. You're just giving them permission to. Yeah. You're saying it's okay to laugh, and that's the relationship." And I think, um, you know, a, a really aggressive performer that comes out uh, can create their their own rhythm, and and you know, it's a, it's a it's a tougher act, I reckon, an aggressive. Uh, comedian versus somebody who's a little more and then the, the, the ex- extreme of that on the other side would be somebody who's so ingratiating it's almost you know vomit provoking but somewhere in the middle there there's all these shades of wonderful shades of grey where you where you can you know you can you can kind of hit the right mark for you and uh, and anyway we had this conversation and at the end uh, you know the next performance he didn't he consciously didn't turn and the laugh was back and I've I've done it myself but uh, on the, I did the odd couple at the MTC and there was a great laugh at the end of the play, uh, towards the end of the play and I never quite knew why they were laughing 
And, and it was a very satisfying laugh, maybe for that very reason, because it kind of had nothing to do with what I was doing. It kind of had nothing to do with performance. It was something to do with character. And it was something to do with the way it was written. It had nothing to do with me. But the moment that I became conscious of the fact the laugh was coming up, I never got it. When I forgot about it and thought, oh, it's gone, it came back. And I love the fact that I don't know why, to this day, why it would work. Why it would work and why it wouldn't work, apart from my, my head knowing it, I still haven't quite worked out physically what I was doing to destroy that moment. And, uh, and, and that's, that's why I keep doing it. I mean, I love this topic. It's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, during the Comedy Festival this year, I did a show that uh, the, my previous show had been very much, I was telling one big story. Uh, it had to be in a certain order. Um, so, you know, you get to the point where you create the show. And, and being a stand-up comedian, a lot of the time when you're creating the show, you create it in front of audiences. Mm. But then eventually, you get to a point where it's recreation. You know, here, I, here is the way that I think these jokes work best. Yes. And night after night, I'm going to try to recreate the best moment. Whereas this year, I was doing a show that I had about 40, 50 minutes of floating ideas. But I was also doing 20 minutes of like improvisation with the crowd and letting whatever energy I had with the crowd then inform the material. Mm -hmm. So while night after night, I might be talking about the exact same subject, I would be talking about it in with a different speed, energy, tone, you know, relationship that I had with the audience. And what I found was that the laughs would come so easily and wouldn't necessarily be uh, able to be replicated. So... For example, if I fell into the trap the next night of going, oh, it worked oh, really yeah. well when I did that line that way last night yeah. and tried to do it again, the laugh wouldn't come. Whereas something that I just came up with in the moment yes. would get the big laugh because the audience could sense. Like they didn't know. No, no, it but, wasn't, it, but it they could, organic. But they knew. Yeah, it's organic. They get it. They get that it's – and it's also something very – again, it's a subconscious thing where they know it's just for them. And you can, you can, you can kind of recreate – those moments every now and again but but hitting it every every time is impossible and if an audience and that's this is why you know you're attracted to going back in front of an audience rather than constantly doing it uh, on television and then just letting that tour for you the 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 fun of it uh, is um is a bespoke performance for every night and i only discovered that about tw after 20 years of performing on stage i only discovered it quite recently that you don't try and capture that moment that you got last night because if you do you knock over the moment that precedes it and you knock over the moment that follows it and you might even ruin the moment that you're trying to recreate but even if you get it they're going to know that's a bit then they're going to know it doesn't quite fit with what came before it and uh, the fun of it is uh, and you can do this with a play I mean it, it's uh, you, you've you've given yourself a very interesting challenge by doing that because you've taken not only the net away but a lot of the rope that you're walking on and you've you actually got bits of rope missing, and you've got to sort of get from one end of the rope to the other end of the rope as you're as you're doing this tightrope walk. But um, uh, yeah, if you're at that stage now, I think probably, you know, in a few years' time, you'll be able to literally have confidence to go out with nothing. Well, it's funny you say that because I'm thinking about next year doing a show where I like. So I've done those before. I've, I do them at Comedy Store in Sydney. I'll do a completely improvised show every night, different. Just mostly talk to the crowd and you know muck around, but yeah. I've never done them in a big theatre. But, but I am do you do, actually. You do that. You do that to find a material. That well, you originally build? that's what I used to do them for, yes. and then I found that the shows worked better if I just treated them as 
experiments in what I could do with my comedy rather than things. So again, not looking to recreate material or work up material, mm. looking to just serve that audience and that room and that show, and learning the lesson of that yes. rather than taking out individual bits. Learning the lesson of the whole rather than. Little bits that make up the whole. Yeah, and yeah, I think that maybe next year at the festival I will do an entire show that is like do a run of shows that are completely made up on the spot. I think that that is something that I would find very exciting to do, and I feel like I'm at the point where if I'm ever going to take that risk, that I would take that risk. What, yeah, what yeah. Feels- but you've also got to trust. You have a you have a relationship with your audience too, which enables you that they give you permission to do that. And I bet you, you come absolutely out and, and tell them what you're doing too. You tell them this is how it's going to work tonight. Well, and even if you don't, you're telling them. In like the, by the, the nature of how you're doing it, sure. you're telling them. You know, you're setting them the example of this is how it works. Sometimes by just doing, this is how it works. What uh, exo- I, the reason I want to do that is because I genuinely find that challenging mm. in the way that you know and uh, yeah i'm never going to be a steve martin but in, in the way that he eventually got to the point where he goes i understand at least how i can do this to the point that people will enjoy this i feel like that i feel like i'm confident enough that i've been doing this long enough that i could write a show every year that people would enjoy mm-hmm. but if i want to do something that genuinely terrifies me or genuinely excites me then perhaps this is the next step in the evolution what is it that you still have up your sleeve that you know excites you or terrifies you uh te- well I don't, I don't know whether is there something i don't know whether there's anything terrifying is there anything that ever has are you a person who feels that emotion towards work at all ever um well i did promise myself very early on because uh, my kid my kids i remember having a conversation with my children about them being nervous about doing things and i said well that's that's only adrenaline. That's this adrenaline pumping through, and actually helps you, um, you know, be a little more acute in your thinking and your actions and everything. It's actually quite helpful to have that pumping through before you, you undertake something that you're not quite sure about. And that's certainly true as a performer going on stage. Is that I felt if my heart's not beating, if I, if there's not adrenaline pumping through my body, then it's time to stop. So if I'm not nervous, I'd be worried about the quality of the performance that I would give when I walk down on stage. And I, used to, I thought that for many years. And then there was a point about three years ago when I was doing a show with Stephen Curry where I was waiting in the wings and we were about to go on stage and I felt no nerves at all. And I thought, oh, dear, this is I'm very worried about this. But I went on and it was absolutely fine. I had to be slightly more conscious of my energy, uh, but I felt more in control. And I had, And we all have, when we perform, a sort of outside eye on us where we can ride things and we can cover things and that looks after us a little bit because we have the sense of ourselves and how we're performing but i i found that i could be in the moment a bit more when i didn't have the heart pumping too much and i thought oh that's really interesting so since then i i am not nervous anymore and my advice to my children is wrong (laughs) 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 it's actually it was actually quite i haven't told them i was wrong i'd never admit that i was wrong because that would uh, that would sort of knock my authority get them get them to listen to the podcast we can we can time code it. We can just right. time code this bit. They don't have to sit through the whole thing. Well, okay. Well, I'll tell them. I'll tell them what the time is. I say, look, you turn it off at that point. Yeah. And just jump back in again later. But uh, I thought that I don't know why that is. Um, but uh, it was. It's kind of gratifying to know that uh, you can sort of be more in control of something without it. I mean, there is some fun in being. Comp- 
completely having it run out ahead of you and you kind of kick behind the play. I kind of like that a bit. That's the challenging thing. And it's kind of what you're going to be doing, kind of what you're wanting to do now for your own performance is going, you know what? I'm going to take a couple of rungs off this ladder and see if I can still climb it, you know. Well, that, that, so that when I started doing them in Sydney and when it went from being sort of a yeah, a trial show to being just a improvised show for the sake of it being an improvised show was people always said to me, they said, well, you must have a couple of things up your sleeve. And I said, no, that, that was when I used to get in trouble. When you start to think, where can I jam this thing in? Or oh, this yeah. isn't going well, yeah, I'll yeah. go to that. Whereas if you allow yourself the possibility, and this is what you are if you do a show like this, at some stage this is going to fail. At some stage, you're going to run into a dead end. Sometimes, at some stage, you're going to f- you find yourself in a hole and then it'll be about how good you are at wow. digging your way out of the hole. I, I that couldn't do that. Side. That would terrify me. I don't think I could do that. I think... Uh, and w- w- when, you, when you do this, though, uh, are there points where you process, you make a decision not to? I know you've gone on stage with no intention of using a, a joke that you know is going to work, but have there been little avenues that you've gone down dark alleys of improvisation where you think man there's nothing at the end of this and have had to consider using a joke and then even just gone no i've got to stick to my principles here and not use it i always say the the first night's the easiest night because there's nothing in your head so like for example if you the problem is on the second night say for example we're talking about i don't know climate change just to use an example right the first night you might be talking about something you know, this thing about climate change and the truth of it is when you get to climate change, anything's a possibility because you don't have any jokes about it. You haven't done anything before. Yeah. And so you have so many things to choose from on how you could attack that topic or talk about that topic. Now, the second night, if you get onto climate change again, your brain, instead of going, look at all these things mm. that you have, goes, hey, remember we went here last night? Yeah, remember night? the shiny thing that everyone yeah, liked last yeah. night? Just go there. Yeah. Ignore all these other things. They're, they might not be good. We know this one's good. So you do have to steer your brain away from that. All right. So you're killing a couple of valuable seconds there. Yes. Storing this thing that you, you're making a decision not to use something. I found that with, um, with theatre sports when I used to do that when I was a lot younger. And, and ultimately, that's why I don't do it anymore is because I was using too much energy and time deciding not to use things that my performance actually slowed down and it wasn't terribly good. I think I just wasn't the sort of person who could leap over those those grooves and furrows that had already been formed by doing it. Um, and look, you know, and that's a skill in itself and a discipline in itself that you can you can kind of hop over those things really quickly. If you're in the moment, almost everything you say will be right. Like yes. if you're actually in the moment, like you said, even if you're hurtling towards something terrible, you will feel the audience know that at the same time you know that, and you'll get the biggest laugh of the night by just acknowledging what everybody in the room is already feeling but is unspoken and no one ever, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean... Well, it- Rob, Rob Sitch explained that to me once. He was... Because we were doing... Um, this is at the very start of uh, Thank God You're Here. And he, he was saying to, to me, he said, it's a bit like the laugh a tennis player gets when they do something with the ball. Like, it's not yeah. funny at all. But because it's so... <laughs> In the moment, yeah. you know, it gets a really big laugh from the audience. And, and like you think, you know, you'd never, why would you do that? You wouldn't plan to do that. That's ridiculous. And so that, that kind of, and that kind of works for the show. And, that, and the thinking time and, the, and often, often the best performers on that show, all the most rewarding performers in terms of laughs, were those that maybe weren't very good at it mm. or at least uh, had the, 
There's something about watching somebody think, which is quite interesting, I think. And and, and television does this better maybe than on stage where you're a bit further away. But, uh, yeah, there's a... It's it's the difference between comedy and the comic, if I can be pretentious and suggest there's a difference, or that that idea of something being humorous or comic in life, because comedy is just the recreation of it, or the or the fabrication of it, really, of what happens in what makes us love and love. We go back to Henri Burks and say, well, what's the purpose of laughter? You know, he says it's a social sanction against inflexible behaviour that we uh, that we as animals. Uh, in order to socialise ourselves, would uh, gently chide or reprimand somebody by by laughing at what they did because it wasn't the right thing to do. You know, they wore their their hat funny or something like that, and that wasn't like we were all wearing our hats. So that that was what a laugh was. Um, but comedy is a bit different. Comedy is actually someone knowingly saying to the audience, "I know this isn't real, but you're going to suspend your disbelief, and we're going to we're going to create this moment together." And that's why I'm always astonished when someone comes up for advice and it's nice that they come up for advice. I say, well, how do I become a comedian? I say, well, you've got to go in front of an audience. There's no other way to do it. Oh, I don't want to do that. No, I just want to do stuff in in my room on YouTube. And I think, well, that might be okay, but you're never going to know. You're never going to – it's never going to fire you up. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it if not to get that audience entertained? I don't get it. I still don't get it now. Why? How how people can do it? I, I see people with a lot of talent on online um, who just will never want to do it in front of an audience. Well, I've seen also a few people who are wonderful online, and then get so wonderful online that there is a demand for them to do live performance. You mm-hmm. know, so they'll do, oh yeah, but they end up doing these massive shows because they have this huge online audience and so their first shows really they do in front of people are you know thousands of people who all understand their point of view and their sense of humor and it is actually to go and sit in the audience of one of those things is actually fantastic because it's almost like you're watching aliens do stand-up comedy (laughs) or something because it's like stand-up comedy yes and everybody who's in the audience or like watching stand-up comedy in a foreign country or something it's just it's not what stand-up comedy really is, yeah. But to that audience, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, and maybe that's enough. Maybe it's that, a, maybe it's like God. They right. made a choice that this is what they're <laughs> going to enjoy, and they've enjoyed it, and they go away, and they get. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I that is that is really interesting, and there's nothing less valid about that no, than, than the other. Not. But I do wonder about the about the emotional sucker they get from the experience. You know, what's it about? Why why are you doing that? I, don't, I guess I don't need to why know do, that, do Why I? do you do comedy? Well, I, I have thought about this often. Uh, and, uh, you know, my pat answer is about being needy and needing that, that response. But I think, my, I think it probably is half true and less interesting, to, but I'll share it with you, to, no, say, that, to say that when I, this is the place, this is the place to this do it. This is literally the place to do it. <laughs> was, uh, was that, that it was highly prized in our household to get a laugh out of um, members of the family, whether it was my grandfather or my mother. My mother was always a funny person and uh, we kind of, um, uh, the best laugh was one where you kind of were being transgressive. In other words, where you kind of, there's a bit of an insult in it. So you were kind of being a bit naughty, but still getting the getting the approval of the laugh, despite the fact that you were doing something that normally wouldn't get approval. So that was the fun thing, 
I think, making the family laugh. And it was quite warming. And we weren't a particularly demonstrative family. There weren't necessarily a lot of hugs or anything. So that was kind of the way that you communicated affection. Uh, and I guess I get that same warmth, um, that feeling of warmth anyway. And I have described it as it, it's, it's warming being on stage and getting a laugh. And I, I, I've tried to describe the wave effect of a laugh. Uh, if you get an audience of a couple of thousand people or something, it kind of, it's in an instant, but it kind of runs to the back of the theatre and comes back and hits you. It hits you again in a pleasant way. And in that moment where that you've shared that particular moment of causing and creating the laugh, uh, another idea will occur to you in that moment, which will get you to the next thing. And this is what this is, I think, what you were talking about, Will, about this. If, if you loose yourself from the um, from the material, so you're not. It's not an intellectual process anymore. It's not about remembering what you did yesterday or even remembering the line, the next line that you're going to do. But it's genuinely being in the moment. You're genuinely on that wave with that audience, almost in the same way that they're watching you. Uh, and that's what's probably special and valuable about that moment. And you can't quite get it on television. You can't quite get it. You don't get it all in film. Um, on radio, there's a lot of moving parts going and you've got to kind of look past them and ignore it. It's like television. You've got to ignore the cameras, the lights and everything. You've got to kind of pretend uh, and go on muscle memory, I suppose, uh, in terms of making sure your timing's intact. Uh, so that's why every couple of years or so, I, I'm absolutely uh, intent on getting back in front of a real audience that's come along to see something, whatever it is, whether I'm doing a play or even if it's just... Uh, no matter what it is, I, I just think that's really valuable because I worry about um, uh, if I never did it, if I didn't go back in front of a real audience, that I'd f kind of forget what the point of it was. And I'd hate that to happen because it's the only thing I can do, sort of. <laughs> is it now? Well, so that's always, I, I joke about that a little bit, but it, I, there is a kind of point that I feel like I've got to now where, I mean, there was a, there was a point where my journalism degree would have still been useful. Yes, but I, I believe that point is probably, you know. No, but the discipline of you, that you uh, that you learned in attaining your journalism degree and maybe even practicing oh, it is really no, helpful now. The skills it? are helpful exactly. to the career that I have now. They yes. would not be helpful to me pursuing a career in journalism now. No, you can't go back. You'd feel like it was going back. It would definitely feel like going back to me, yeah. and I, I certainly have moved away from the skills and desire to pursue that as a career. And I do often think. You know, partly I, I want to keep finding interesting things to do because I don't have anything else that I can do now. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is, yeah, I'm true. all in on this now. This is. You're institutionalized. Yeah. You can't do anything else. Yeah, I need to make this work. What, it's interesting that, you, interesting that you started off with journalism because journalism is very different from telling a joke, for example, because it, with, you know, if you're telling a story as a journalist, you're kind of giving all the information up front and then exploring it in more detail yeah. in the following paragraphs. Whereas when you're a comic, you're giving as little information as possible and then allowing the picture to be properly painted by the end of it. It's quite, they're the inverse of each other. Yeah, it's, it's almost, yeah, absolutely yeah. in reverse. You're, yeah. Yeah, absolutely correct. And Although, like, there is a, you know, there probably is a similarity between, you know, headlines and punchlines in that, you know, you're trying to get an economy of words to yeah. express a, you know, a bigger idea. Uh, you know, there are some things. I mean, I used to love, I don't think I ever loved journalism. You know, the idea of telling other people's stories wasn't really that interesting to me. I clearly wanted to tell my own stories. Well, but you might be wanting to tell the truth. 
I was, yeah. That's the same, isn't it? Well, it turns out that I think you have more opportunity to tell the truth in comedy than you do in journalism would be an argument that perhaps I would make. Maybe a little bit glibly, but I no. think often is the case. And I think you, I think certainly with your work, you prep in the way that you would. Uh, you're lucky you're, you're well-armed to make the points you're making. I, I try to, and that yeah. certainly comes from that background. But yeah. I was always impressed by I loved the language of, you know, you know, headless man found in topless bar. You know, I always thought that the way that those, you know, old school newspaper reports, I mean, still one of my favourite bits of writing of all time is after uh, Murali, who was the Murali Thurin, the uh, Sri Lankan mm. bowler who had the bent arm and he was in Australia, one of the greatest uh, cricketers of all time, and he was in Australia and there was an umpire called uh, Daryl Hare was the name of the umpire who called him for throwing, uh, which is a bit of an egregious, uh, you know, uh, sin in cricket. And then he went uh, on to... Uh, play another test match series that uh, Daryl Hare wasn't officiating overseas. And I always remember the headline in the newspaper was, uh, Hare or no Hare, Murali's balls are clean. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what, that's just a great piece of writing. Pretty good. Yeah, the guy, yeah. take the rest of the day off, person who came up with that. Don't headline. need an article. Exactly. Under that's it. it. I don't care. Yeah. That's fine. Does the job. What's the most fun uh, you've had? doing comedy what is it that you've enjoyed the most not necessarily what's been the most successful for mm. you but what has just been genuinely fun for you to do well that's a that's a better question than what's what's been the most successful because that kind of changes the things that i was that i thought were great when i was doing them because i think you have to be in love with whatever you're doing when you're doing it uh later on you think oh that's a bit shit isn't it that wasn't <laughs> terribly good at all what's the next thing let's go on to the next thing it actually helps you move on and i think to be a little harsh on yourself uh, but the most fun I've had, well, probably to be honest with you, I mean, it sounds like I'm doing a plug. But the the talking about your generation, uh, which uh, you've you've had the hope, the pleasure of being on, uh, because a lot of that, particularly now in the present incarnation, is not written and it's genuinely in the moment. Uh, that's collaborative, uh, free form stuff where someone else is largely responsible for it. Uh, for, for it being on or, you know, where I don't have to worry about. Because um, often when I'm doing Mad as Hell, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there going, knowing where the edit will be or, uh, and you must feel this on Gruen too, you kind of know, that's okay, they can cut to somebody else here and we can that, telescope this or I know they're not going to use this bit, <laughs> that sort of thing. So you tend never to be really in the moment. You tend to be in the edit suite in your head or you tend to be a cameraman. You know, I've occasionally and, got to the point on Gruen where we're having a conversation where I literally just stop and say, this is not making the cut. Let's move on. <laughs> that's good. Well, it's good, good to call it early. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I can do that with my fellow actors no. because they're halfway through the performance going, just forget it. Yeah, look, look, you it's know what? not going to work. Go and get changed into the next outfit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, some, so something like a generation where, and you know, to a certain extent, uh, thank God you're here, wasn't like this because I was petrified of letting everybody down. But because I don't feel that responsibility on generation, I could just kind of do anything and we'll see what happens. And that's, that, that is on one view indulgent, but on another view, if it works, it's pretty good because tv is so slick and processed now that it really feels like a anyway that doesn't inform my fun of it the fun of it is in the moment i think that's probably what i enjoy and i love working with uh particularly i enjoy working with lawrence and, and andy but and particularly robin who i've known for years and she kind of knows i love that moment where you kind of know the person knows where you're going to end up they don't necessarily know how you're going to get there but they know 
pretty much the trajectory of this next moment. They know how long it's going to take. They know how you're going to get there. And and the, the great fun of performing with like-minded people who love comedy is is dancing with it. It's kind of like dancing with each other. And you kind of, it's just lovely. You know, you just fall in love with them in that moment, that moment you've created together. And you know it could never happen if it was a, there was another ingredient missing or present. It might be different, might be just as rewarding or rewarding in a different way. But, you know, that's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Surely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we do something like this, I... I rarely think of it as a like as this being an interview. I mean, it's a, it would be a terrible interview. I mean, I sat at the knee of Andrew Denton, and he'd be so disgusted by the way I <laughs> Polly Connolly, who uh, you know worked uh, at Andrew's side for years, and uh, you know is the producer on uh, Gruen. Uh, she actually asked me one day. She goes, "So who does your research for for philosophy? How do you research?" And I was like, "Oh." Yeah. Look, I'm not Andrew. Uh, we just start talking. And then when the guest says something interesting, I just tend to pursue that down the rabbit hole. But I like it because I feel like we're creating something together. Yeah. You know? Well, you're asking a question and then there's an answer. And you, and you know, it actually fits in with Andrew's philosophy, which was, he, I just said, what's the secret? And he says, just got to listen. Mm. You know, And that's what he, that's what he does. He, he approaches it differently. But it's certainly what, you, what you're doing is listen. Well, hopefully we're both listening to each other. Uh, so and hopefully the listeners are listening. That was the most fun. Oh, well, that is the most fun. And I can absolutely agree. It is a fun show to do. It's a show that exists for the purpose of fun as well. Yeah. Like, yes, as it in, serves has no right. agenda. It serves no other function. No. Yeah. We, the, the lineup is we are here for the purpose of fun. Yes. It is almost silly if we don't have fun making something that is meant to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. If we're trying too hard to... For it to be fun, oh, yeah. the audience will sense that. Oh, man, you know? yeah, there's plenty of those around. Well, I mean, even just that idea of often I find, you know, early on in the evolution of those shows, whatever they are, there's always a tendency to over-tape. Yeah. You know, there'll be a tendency to go, we'll tape more yeah. and we'll edit it together tighter yeah. and there'll be it'll be funnier because there'll be more funny bits in it. And almost always that is not the case. Almost always if you let it breathe and let it have the fun and have the natural fun and don't take the space out before that big laugh, the big laugh will be worth the extra joke that you tried to jam into. Yeah, and you've got to try. Yes, you you have to have trust in the person who's going to be looking after the post-production. I'm all over it with Mad as Hell, but I, I, I... you know, executive producer is extraordinarily good on generation and, and knows the value of the steps that need to be taken to get from one moment to another. So it's not, you know, a blunt ear will go, oh, well, the laugh, the, the, there's no laugh here. The big laugh's coming up. But of course, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds fake uh, if you take away all those steps. Uh, uh, have you ever made anything that didn't work out how you thought it was going to work out when you started doing it? Um, well, I think everything I've done has turned out differently to how I imagined it. Uh, I say that was that's true of everything. Nothing's, I mean, everything's perfect in your head, um, but it's always been be- better, I think, because as soon as you, <clears throat> if I write some, if I write something and then um, it becomes something different when you give it to the actor, uh, and you need to allow it to be that different thing, and there might be a kind of a word that's emphasised a bit differently, or not how you would have done it, or not how you imagined it. And unless it's there's a, like a hundred ways to get it wrong, there's probably a, probably you know fifty ways to get it right. There's there's a lot of what. And so if you've cast properly, then and you trust the person to make that contribution, then you owe it to yourself and to your fellow performer to allow them 
to do it the way they wanted to do it in an unmolested way, unless it unless it stinks. <laughs> you might give some advice in there. But I'd never give a line reading to anybody. But, they, but um, it always is different for that reason. And then the director might also have a view of shooting it in a certain way. And I'll often watch the monitor on, on Mad as Hell and the director and I kind of work together. And it's as much a part of telling the story as as it would be in front of a microphone actually physically telling the story, the way you, you shoot it. So I will tend to... On my stuff, I'll tend not, for example, to cut to the audience shot at all. We don't do that at all in Mad as Hell. And the reason we don't do that is because um, it just doesn't feel right to see an audience laughing for some reason on Mad as Hell. It doesn't. It feels like we have to pretend the conceit is that there wasn't an audience there. So it's not quite like um, it's not a quite it's not quite like a it's not a live entertainment show. Mad as Hell. It's supposed to be a news program. So to show the audience would actually uh, betray that conceit. Uh, so again, I've forgotten the question. Oh, oh was it, what's well? The... No, it was about. Well, I mean, we were talking about the nature of a whole bunch of things, and there were so many things in what you said that I found interesting. So I'm going to reframe it, if that's okay sure, with you. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, how are you at? What is your method of giving feedback to people? And what is your? And how are you at taking feedback? Who do you get feedback from? Who is your sounding board? Who do you trust when it comes to? Or is it you know you are the p- person who is giving yourself feedback? Uh, yeah. Well, look, I've on. I'll give Mad as Hell as an example because that's uh, the one I've been doing the longest. And my the co-creator and co-writer of that is a fellow called Gary McCaffrey. With her, and he went to the same school I did, and he went to university. He's a couple of years older than I am. And uh, he and I did university review and he kind of got me the job on Full Frontal and he's, we've worked together for 35 years, longer actually, now 40 years, I suppose. We've known each other and worked with each other. So he's still involved with Mad as Hell and his opinion is extraordinarily valuable. Having said that, I don't tend to go to him and say, was well, that all right? I can, I can, when I'm writing, kind of write in his voice or with his, I put his hat on and I go, well, would this pass muster if... if if Gary was writing it, because we used to write together, physically write together, and I'd, you know, he'd drive and I'd wander around behind him, and and I wouldn't hear the keyboard going that often when he was driving. But if I said something funny, then it would go, and then that was kind of approval. <laughs> I tended to be a little more, a little more deferential to him, as I still am now. But so I can kind of, in a kind of schizoid way, I can kind of become uh, my own. Uh, uh, another voice in my head that tells me that no, that's not quite right. This needs to be tighter or whatever. Uh, but he, the, the valuable thing about Gary is that he won't lie, and he and those people are really important. They won't try and make you feel better just because it's going to make the moment easier. Uh, but really, if something stinks, you kind of know it anyway, and you're just wanting somebody to confirm it. But if somebody came up to me, if I knew something stank, and somebody comes up and says, sees that I'm suffering, and says. <laughs> That was good. That was fine. I, that's it. I can't trust that person ever again. So that that number of people, the number of people who who are honest, uh, if you've got those around you, you need to keep a hold of them for life because they kind of fall away a little bit. So I, they're really important. But if I'm writing something, I don't tend to give it to anybody else to read. I, I'm kind of probably, I'd like to think I'm a bit more ruthless on my material than somebody else would be anyway. And certainly in the edit suite, I'm very harsh on myself particularly I can edit around my inadequacies as a performer very adroitly uh, the idea of performing your own work versus performing other people's work um, 
Well, I, I, I've mainly done that, I suppose. And then if I'm, in, if I'm an actor in the service of somebody else's story, I will be more respectful of that material than I would be of my own. With, with my own, I treat, I treat it like I've had an idea and I'm shepherding it through a whole bunch of things in order to get it to the audience. And, and as, a, as a writer, I've, I've got the idea. As a performer, I can look after it to a certain extent. As an as a executive producer, I can, I can look after it in the edit suite, etc. And, and I speak the language of... I can't do the editing, I can't sp- I, but I can certainly speak the language of all the other departments and um, we're all kind of on the same page now. Um, so that, and I, and also feel free to alter something or change something or avoid something or cut it or whatever. But if it was someone else's thing, I'd, I'd have a completely different relationship to it. And I would certainly when I perform in other people's programs and they're nice enough to ask me to come on and, and I'm very careful about what do you want to intend? What do you want to achieve? How do you want me to be? And then I can, I can, I can become them, uh, in their world. I've changed my acts to suit their needs and if they say no we want you to do what you do it still has to be slightly um shaped so that it fits uh their rhythm and it's like uh, it's like turning up on a radio program often you go in and you, and you kind of jump in on their energy and be what they need you to be because if you go in and just do your own shtick all the time first of all the audience will get sick of it because they've heard it so many times but if you can again if you can fold it a little bit so it suits the shape that's required uh, I, I enjoy that. You just got to read the room a bit, you know. Um, and the time time will come when that can't. When you time will come when I guess I'm going to be a bit tone deaf to that. Uh, I think I'm just assuming that'll happen with age. Is that y- you? You'll get to the point. I'll get to the point where uh, I won't be able to read the room, and I just want to get out slightly ahead of that moment. Do you, is that something that does concern you? Because as a comedian, there is. I think it is certainly one of those career choices because comedy doesn't necessarily have to be of the zeitgeist, but probably great comedy ages probably worse than almost any other art form in that like, you know, there are some great pieces of comedy that are still great comedy today. Yes. But when you look back at, you know, the work of Lenny Bruce would be no good if Lenny Bruce was trying to do it today no comedy has become a different thing and often you know things that were hilarious in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s through today's eyes and through today's standards of the way that comedy has evolved it doesn't necessarily have the timelessness of you know other art forms no and i'll I'll probably and you're probably the same you'll kind of cut it you'll view older stuff through a nostalgic lens and and for example like bob newhart let's say bob newhart as an example to me he's to me, listening to his old stuff is is still funny. I agree. But I think if you played it to uh, my sixteen year old, there'd be nothing, absolutely nothing in it that they would they would like. There'd but be he's no a driving instructor. Yeah. You've got to like see. He's a. Oh. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's because there's a lot of things to appreciate. Like I think when if I go and see if I go and see anything on stage, and if I'm not that into the material. If a performer's funny, I would love watching that performer perform. There's something about the presentation of it. There's something about the performative aspect that I will love. And I'll probably like that more than the material anyway, usually. Uh, you know, a good joke's a good joke. Um, but a really good comic performer is probably more special and more rare. You, that's a really good example. They'll always be around. I think because, they'll always be around. I think, And I, I think, like in my example, I think if Lenny Bruce were 
a comedian today, Lenny Bruce would be a great comedian today. He'd just be doing different stuff to yeah. what Lenny Bruce was doing then. It, like you said, the comedian would still be the funny comedian. Yeah. It's but he'd be able to, that, he'd be able to read the room. I mean, yeah. he was he was again. I use that word transgressive. He was a he was genuine. That was a that was a choice uh, to be that trans. And and also uh, Carlin, um, oh, George Carlin, George Carlin. Yeah, of course. He started off far more conventional stand up yeah. comic than absolutely than he ended up. Really, only became the George Carlin that most of us know George Carlin as being uh, at, at around age fifty. Yeah, that's right. But if you watch his earlier stuff when he's wearing a suit and tie yeah. and appearing on the Merv Griffin show. He's still got something. He's yeah. he's he he's really good, and he's made some. And same with Richard Pryor, again, very buttoned down, straight, kind of doing almost Jerry Lewis. If you look look at him before he cut loose, but there's been a bunch of because they're smart people. There's been a bunch of decisions they've made where they'll go. You know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to try this and see whether that'll work. And they, ditto Jim Carrey was an impressionist and decided to go on stage with no material and lie under a table and be really weird and do this kind of sort of situationist stuff for a while and that and they kind of get through a bunch of doors and then out into and and have their own voice i'm interested in what you think about the the changing nature of 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 comedy and i i ask this with no agenda um it, like but is there i mean i i just I'll, I'll tell you the absolute honest reason is that uh, i was talking to a friend of mine the other day uh we were talking about the fact that you were coming to do this podcast and this friend their favorite comic creation of all time like of all time makes them laugh more than anything else ever in the history of the world is milo kerrigan right. now is is milo the sort of character that if you were doing that sort of show today do you do you think you could would would that would you find a way of that character still being a character that would you would be able to do or is that a character that comedy has changed that it wouldn't I, I, I again. Yeah, I, I, I ask with no agenda. I, I just am interested in what your reaction to that question is. Well, I, I think well, there are a couple of inherent problems with that character that probably would raise more questions, would raise questions that it didn't raise when it was first done in the mid nineties. The fact that it's a, essentially a brain damaged boxer. Mm. Uh, it it was a what it was was a clown character. It was a, it was my chance to do something really physical and it didn't matter what was being said and it was literally invented to kill some time on full frontal. <laughs> we had a, a news segment and we had to come up with five, ten minutes every show and, and we thought him rambling on for two minutes and just take the pressure <laughs> off us essentially. So he had to be inarticulate and uh, then the, the physical stuff grew from that and uh, I think there'd certainly be a way, I mean, if I, was a, if I was younger and could still take a fall, I mean, I took a fall Last year, last fall, my wife said no more. No more? <laughs> because, you know, I was 54 or something and I fell off the back of a, a stool on talking about your generation and hit the floor. And I was fine, absolutely fine. There was something, something kind of, you know, inherently, you just kind of curl your body up and, hey, I'm like a cat, you know, I, I won't hurt myself. But, uh, uh, yes, I don't want to detach my retinas at this stage. Uh, <laughs> so there'd be, but there'd be a way of, there'd be a way of, doing some clowning and I do still do that occasionally I'm still quite physical and I sort of I think I uh, wouldn't do that character necessarily but uh, if I was the r right age and I still had the right amount of energy I'd find some way of doing something like that and would you uh, I guess there's a broader debate that springs out of that which is that there'd be a school of people who are, are of the opinion that you know, political correctness has killed comedy, and you can't say anything anymore, and you know, blah blah blah. Yeah. Uh, and then, I guess there's other people who, I mean, look, I'll just 
I'm this. I'm not. I don't subscribe to that. I see the challenge of evolving comedy and finding new ways to discuss ideas and stuff a challenge, and I enjoy it. And I I don't feel constricted in anything that I, you know, no. want to say or can say. And well, I it's think a version it, of reading the room, isn't it? It's right. the same thing. You you if you go out there. Uh, uh, if you go out there in front of an audience and you say a joke and you can feel the audience shrink back from it, then you know that you're going to leave that out in the next show. If you haven't already anticipated it, there's probably a problem anyway. But if you find yourself ad-libbing or uh, improvising or being in the moment and you're, not, you're no longer connecting with the bulk of that audience, then there's a, there's a, there's a red flag there. Um, I, I, don't think the, I don't think those sorts of th- It depends where you are. I mean, nothing, anything can get a laugh. And there's always been an underground uh, catalogue of jokes f- forever that you you, di- you told in the school ground. I mean, remember in the eighties with the dead baby jokes. You oh, know, they, yeah. they were you know you'd never do it on television, uh, but in the schoolyard it's fine. And so what political correctness does is maybe drive a whole bunch of jokes that uh, you and I might not choose to do because we just choose not to do those jokes. But it drives them underground uh, and and in the alleyways and people will still laugh at them. It doesn't make any difference. It's still going to be funny to some people, but, um, you know, uh, it depends where you are. If I'm on the ABC, there's a certain type of choice I make about the sort of jokes that are taxpayer-funded, I suppose. I go, <laughs> well, it, is this the right forum to explore this particular idea? Uh, uh, I think... I think yeah, and and yeah, and the, on top of that is the challenge of of being of being advised that maybe that word, uh, I'm talking about TV here, that word is not acceptable uh, in this context. And I say, well, what about if we explore that word? Oh, that's fine. We can explore that word and that use of that word, and uh, you can have a character who has negative traits that um, that uh, invite questions and things. That's fine. But I, I, for years now, I've 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 always said that. Look, if I can argue. A joke afterwards. If someone takes objection to something and I can put a reasonably good argument to justify its inclusion, then that's okay. I mean, it might not be a definitive answer or it might even not terribly be a convincing argument depending on who's being who's being spoken to. Um, but I probably wouldn't these days just go for a, an out, a, a shock laugh or a, or a joke that is by its nature only outrageous. I have done that in the past, you know, and it's a temptation when you when you get um, a platform uh, like a television show and you want to shake things up a little bit. You think and uh, and say things that are outrageous, and it, it kind of plays itself out after a while, doesn't it? As well, a, I think to go back to the Steve Martin book, you know, yes. as we've spoken about, I think there's a, a great insight in that about uh, the idea that, you know, when you're young, you can make a lot of jokes about cancer and then you get older and you know a few people who've died of yeah. cancer and it's just not quite as funny to you yeah, anymore. Yeah. Life gets more, it's less black and white as you get older and that's a, that's a good thing, I think. All right, well, so we have to start finishing up, uh, but I say start finishing up because it takes me a little while to, to finish up. But <laughs> I know you've got to do debrief now. You've got another right. commitment, uh, but I, I have a couple of quick questions that I do want to ask. Uh, so uh, this one is, is there a moment in your life that you would li- like a do-over on? Or are you of that sort of opinion that, you know, everything that happens brings you to here, blah, blah, blah? Or is there a moment that if you had a time machine or your time over that you'd like a do-over? Oh, uh, yes. I, you know, the, I'm certainly not without regrets. Uh, and when I, when I started off uh, in this biz, I was very, very hungry. Very, very hungry to do whatever it is I, I felt I needed to do. And maybe because I started it quite late. Too. I was about 30 when I wanted to 
to do this thing and I felt, I think I felt that I had to catch up. I had to play catch up a little bit. So I was very hungry. And then, then after a few years, it turned into a sort of, uh, and in the process of being hungry, I think I was a little rough on people and people who were trying to help me. And, uh, and uh, I was a little brusque and I, a little sort of less than nice. So I, I do regret that. If I could have my time over again, knowing what I know now, I'd realize that none of it's that important. Because <laughs> once I had children, I thought, oh, okay, that's the point of it all. That's that's the, oh that's why I'm there. if I there's a reason for me to be here then that must be it, so you kind of kind of don't worry about small things anymore. Um, so the the hunger that I had sort of turned into a an appetite, which is controllable. And then now it's probably just a taste. I mean, I quite enjoy it. I quite enjoy it. I don't, but I I do it because I like it rather than because I need to do it. I think uh, I can't think of what else to do, but I I. I get more pleasure out of it, I think, and there's a whole bunch of things around it that give me pleasure as well. Well, now you're not drinking to get drunk. You're enjoying a nice glass of wine <laughs> yeah, sure. afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Or just the smell of it occasionally. <laughs> well, sometimes you just at a wine tasting, swirl it around in the yeah. mouth, spit it back out again. Uh, can I ask you um, uh, now this question? It, like, again, if you don't want to speak about family i'm uh, this is not 60 minutes but you've mentioned your family a couple of times i'm always very interested in what your family's relationship to you is steve abbott the sandman told me that his son thought it was the coolest thing in the world until he was about 12 that his dad was the sandman and that it was <laughs> the most embarrassing thing <laughs> that had ever happened how how have your children's relationship to what you do for a job uh been yeah well i get yeah it's hard for me to get into their heads but they they know of nothing else and there was a certain cachet in the playground i think when they were young and i was doing a pro i was doing generation originally on channel 10 which was the the most well-known thing that i'd done uh and uh so there was there was having to deal with very nice people who come up and want to take a picture or whatever and and they had to stand to one side while that happened. And I know from their conversation since that they really didn't like that. I really hated that. Right. I don't, uh, yeah. And I kind of knew that they didn't like it. So I used to say, oh, no, I'm here with my family or whatever. So that, there was a kind of delineation between those moments. But in terms of the actual material, I did, cut, I did walk in one day when they were all, oh, I don't know, I guess the oldest one who's 21 now, he might have been about 12 and he was showing his 10-year-old and uh, 8-year-old brother's uh, Milo Kerrigan on YouTube and they were laughing <laughs> as if it was a different guy, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't go over that well with them, but, uh, you know, they're enjoying the old stuff. So that was, <laughs> well, I've got a friend who would also like to be invited around for those YouTube viewings. Sure. Uh, so yeah, look, they're funny too. The guys are funny, but they don't feel the need to, um, to take it to the stage, which is, um, you know, probably healthier. Did you have a particular philosophy towards parenting or did, was it a, yeah, as you... Uh, just to be present, you know, and I don't mean that, uh, I don't mean that flippantly uh, or even geographically. I just mean to try and be in their world as much as possible, which is kind of easier when you're, when you're in this business, I think, to, to, to have that sense of play. And so that was, uh, and the good thing about another good thing about this job is that you can kind of call your own hours to a certain extent. And there are periods where you're lying fallow for a while, and that's great because you can you can be home. So my wife and I both decided to be as home as much as we could as they were growing up. And uh, so as a result, we talk a lot and laugh a lot about the same things. And you know, those moments as they 
find their own way in the world. And I always say, you know, the, the most the, the most pride I feel is when I can, when they're walking off ahead of us, and I can see them, and they kind of don't have to look back, which is kind of a nice metaphor. And I figure, well, if I turn around, I'll see my own parents behind us, and so on and so on and so on. So it's it's quite a nice image uh, seeing them kind of just run out, walk out ahead of us, you know, as adults. I mean, that's a nice way to finish. Sure. I mean, you really stuck the landing there. I had another question <laughs> up my sleeve, but I'm not going to answer. Uh, I'm not going to ask it after that one. Well, that was beautiful. Put, Plus, on the, put on the extras. Yeah, you need to get to a, a, another interview anyway. But uh, thank you so much. Talking about your generation is currently on the television. Sure. Uh, but also uh, your book, uh, which uh, people can still, well, yes. your most recent book. Very nice quote on the Highly recommended somebody, by, by me. Yes. <laughs> highly recommended by me. You. In between a couple of legendary comic uh, figures uh, on the back page, which I was uh, quite impressed to just even be on the same page. You were, the, you were the, I think you're in the middle too. So yeah. you got Matt, you got Matt Lucas on Matt, top of you and yeah. Ben Elton ben under Elton you. The, I mean, I was pretty impressed by that. I was like, to be honest, I'm really bringing down this page of recommendations. Uh, but Sean, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Matt, is how back? Uh, back, yes, uh, end of June. So uh, pre-production very shortly. Just in time to have missed the election, Will. I was, yeah. So was there any desire to suddenly get it all together to do it during the election? No, the weekly's on. The Charlie's actually slightly more sprightly than we are in terms of being able to handle uh, the the things that happen because he records on Wednesday goes to air Wednesday so and I think his show is probably better uh, able to uh, better equipped to be able to deal with the day-to-day things and uh, do you know how many weeks you're doing uh, yes we're doing 13 and then that's it for this year Okay, uh, so that must mean we're not on at the same time. Oh, we yeah. So we have to we, tag we can... in, tag out. That must be uh, almost. Does that mean? What do you mean? You're not on this year? Well, we're. But I don't think we. Oh, I don't, I'm, I'm September. not sure. That I'm, uh, yeah, September. Yeah, yeah September, it's a bit October. late, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit late, isn't it? <laughs> they surely should have told you at some point. Anyway, we'll talk about this off air. Yeah, I think this is off air, Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. So thanks, Will. Um, uh, it was great. I, I wasn't as scared as I thought I'd be. <laughs> 